When I was in year 10 of school, uh, one day we were handed out a letter at roll call that we were told you had to take this home to your parents. It was such an important letter. And then after lunch that day, we had an assembly and after the you know, formalities of this, the assembly happened, um, we were told again, if you didn't get a letter in roll call, come down to the front now and get a letter because you have to take this letter home to your parents. Now, not being one to uh, rush to class, I thought I would go down and um, waste a bit of time getting another letter. And as I walked down, you know, there were a few people kind of gathering and um, into my view came my maths teacher, who was also my roll call teacher, who was also about that big, and he stepped right in front of me. And he reached out his hand to the top pocket of my shirt and he pulled out the letter that he'd given me at roll call. And he said, McDonald, stop playing the fool and get to class. We don't usually like to be called a fool, but I kind of wore that as a badge of honour that um, I was called a fool. But when we read this psalm that the fool says in his heart there is no God, we are immediately thinking, well, I wonder who that is, it's not me. I'm not a fool. So I want us to just think for a few moments about who this fool is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It sounds like uh, the fool is an atheist, doesn't it? He doesn't believe in God. We know that there are some people who don't believe in God who are very intelligent and they write books and um, try and discredit the existence of God. So the fool is not someone who is kind of intellectually lacking, could be quite well, um, quite academic and, 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 and quite intelligent. So who is the fool? If we think into the context of the Old Testament, we understand that the fool is not an atheist because there were no atheists in the Old Testament. Everybody in every country, in every nation had their gods and everybody's life in every nation, in every country included something to do with religion. So the fool is not the atheist. And again, as we look at the, the, the literature of, of the scriptures of, the, of, of Israel, we see that the, the fool is actually the opposite of the wise. Not the knowledgeable, but the wise. And it is the wise person who actually follows God. Um, in the book of Proverbs, there are 16 mentions of um, the, the fool played off against the wise. Let me read you just one. The wise fear the Lord and shun evil, but the fool is hot-headed, yet feels secure. The wise person knows that the Lord is God and that, that um, he will bring account to people who do wrong. The fool is the one who feels a, a kind of false confidence in their own position 
because they don't think that God is going to um, bring judgment. The book of Ecclesiastes has many uh, mentions also of the wise and the fools. And here's an interesting connection from Ecclesiastes 10. The words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their lips. Isn't that an amazing picture? You know the wise person by their gracious language, but fools are consumed by their very words, consumed by their lips. So in ancient Israel, the fool was the person who lived without acknowledging God. It's not the person who didn't believe in God, but it's the person who lived not as an intellectual atheist, but as a practical atheist. You understand the difference? The intellectual atheist is the person who wants to have arguments and reasons to disprove the existence of God. And, you know, often we come up against intellectual atheists and we, we, their arguments say we're never going to convince them. But a, theoret- sorry, but a practical atheist is someone who lives as if they don't believe in God. Now, the scary thing about that is that you can actually go to church, can't you, and still be a practical atheist. You can come and sing God's praises and then go away and not give him another thought till next Sunday. You can come and pray as we've just done and bring these things to God but then the rest of the week you never pray at all. We can come and hear God's word and we we nod in agreement but then when we go out we've forgotten and it makes no impact on our lives. We need to be careful, don't we, that we are not classed as fools in, the, in terms of the Old Testament covenant, who, even though we don't deny God in terms of his existence, we don't follow him and don't allow him the place in our life that he wants. So the fool says in his heart there is no God and the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there's anybody who understands, anybody who seeks to know God. The psalmist here is in, is in a very difficult situation and there, there are people who are the covenant people of God, who are people of Israel, who are being fools in the way that they behave, their actions we read here, are are vile and uh, they're they're, uh, not just mistreating, um, they are threatening the livelihood of of the people of God, of of those who live by faith in God. Why? Because they they just are are living without any thought that God might have um, a, a consequence to what they're doing. They're living for themselves. And, and still participating in the, the, the uh, formal parts of religion. But God looks down and, he's, and um, the psalmist makes this amazing summary. All have turned aside, all have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. So he's in such despair, 
it's, it's, it's an exaggeration. The psalmist isn't thinking that he's the only person who, who uh, you know, is, is righteous in the, in the whole land. But that is the expression of his heart. It is as if everybody is against him and everybody is disregarding uh, their, their relationship with the Lord and, and their, their covenant beliefs and actions. The Apostle Paul borrows this verse in Romans chapter 3 and he uses it to make an argument that there is nobody who is without sin. So he extrapolates from the psalm to make this statement that there is no one who is righteous, no, not even one. And the, the kind of end of, of that argument is that we actually need the righteousness of God. We actually need um, the, the, the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ in order to deal with our sins. And uh, that is you know, so central to the gospel that Paul uses this psalm in that way. That's a wonderful thing. Um, but as we let the Old Testament have its, have its full say, we need to see what happens with the, with the psalmist because the, uh, the psalmist is crying out for deliverance and uh, he says that the, fool, the fools are against the righteous. They are eating the righteous like bread. They are eating up people and they're doing that uh, through unethical means of, you know, of business and that kind of stuff but they're also doing that out of personal attack and personal um, grievance against the, the, the righteous and the poor. And the psalmist uses this picture which comes from Deuteronomy 8 where God says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So he's bringing into that picture how foolish it is for them to be so, to, they are gaining and prospering by eating up the people of God, but, the, but life is not just about bread, it's not just about the physical. In the spiritual realms, they have no nourishment, they have nothing. And the, the psalmist takes encouragement from that, that, that God is there and uh, he is with the righteous. The fools um, trample over the poor, but God is in the presence of the poor. Uh, the wicked stamp down the righteous, but God is with the righteous, that God stands um, with, with, the, with those who are righteous, present in the company of the righteous. I love that, uh, that word, that image. So the psalmist doesn't see in his own time the, the fools getting what they deserve. He is just crying out to God but in total confidence for the salvation that um, God gives through his covenant. One of the uh, technical words for, for behaviour, for God's behaviour, 
towards his covenant people is uh, loving faithfulness. It's a, it's a kind of covenant description of God's uh, commitment and his action towards us. And the psalmist now calls on God to fulfill that so that God will um, save him and deal with the situation. And he has this confidence of saying, let the salvation of Israel come out of Zion. So Zion, um, the temple in Jerusalem, the, um, you know, the most holy place representing the presence of God himself, reminds the people of the covenant commitment that God has to them and how in his loving kindness he is going to save. He will come out of Zion. He will come as their uh, saviour God and he will uh, destroy the wicked and restore his people. And um, we read at the end of verse, the Psalm verse 7. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores his people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So this psalm is a great psalm because there is, there is the full confidence of salvation, but there is no experience of it. It's an amazing encouragement that when the Lord restores his people, Jacob will rejoice and Israel will be glad. God's salvation is sure. God's salvation is sure and certain. The future may be uncertain. Salvation has not yet come in this psalmist's experience, but he is confident it will come because it comes according to God's promise from the very uh, seat of God's presence in Zion. Now it's easy, isn't it, for us to use this, this um, psalm to link directly to Jesus. Jesus is the salvation who comes out of Zion. It's in Jerusalem where Jesus suffers and dies, pays for our sins, is raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit comes and the church spreads out of Zion. Salvation comes out of Zion. We are so much more fortunate than the psalmist because we have seen the salvation of God. The psalmist was waiting for that full salvation. We have seen that. Jesus comes in victory. He comes in loving kindness, loving faithfulness to restore his people. He overturns the fool and the, and the foolishness of men. As we read in um, Paul's first letter to the church uh, in Corinth, that Jesus is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Isn't that a great combination? He's the wisdom of God. He overcomes all foolishness and uh, brings judgment upon those who have turned against him. And he is, he is um, all-powerful, not just all-wise, but also all-powerful. So he's able to enact that judgment and to bring that salvation that we so desperately need. Jesus brings salvation out of Zion and God's people rejoice. The people of Jacob, the people of Israel, a double banger. All God's people rejoice 
because of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's why we're here, isn't it? That is why we're here. That is the message we have to share with other people. So let's make sure that we are not um, caught out as being uh, practical atheists in, in saying we believe in God but not living for him. Let's be transformed by the power of, of Jesus Christ and live in, in uh, the salvation that he gives to us. So let's, let's pray. God, our Father, we come before you in humility and in thanksgiving because, Lord, we know that there are times when we are foolish and we thank you that in your salvation that you have dealt with those times and that you come to restore, that you come to save. And, Father, may we understand more and more what this salvation uh, means to us as we live for you. And Father, we pray that we might share this salvation that comes through Jesus Christ to the whole world so that all may turn to him and see the wisdom of God and the power of God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.